Good morning. Good morning. I'm Danny Martin, the pastor in residence here at Five Oaks Church. It's good to see all of you here. Good to be seen by all of you watching online. We don't always know if the things that happen in our lives are turns of good fortune or bad. That great new job might actually lead to a toxic work relationship that poisons 40 hours of your week. <laughs> that painful breakup might actually lead to you meeting your lifelong spouse. That big inheritance or lottery win might actually lead to overspending, tax laws you've never even heard of, and financial ruin. The wisdom literature in the Bible, in particular the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, provide us a framework for living in God's world despite uncertainty. In Proverbs, we're given generally true principles for living prudently and morally. No matter what sort of wisdom you're reading about in Proverbs, whether it's about managing emotions, dealing with money, or marrying well, all of the Proverbs are built on the book's main thesis. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The book of Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, forces us to grapple not with generally true positive probabilities if we live morally, but with the uncertainties and calamities that will always come regardless of how we live. It urges us to admit our own ignorance and to ultimately trust in the wisdom of God as we live in the fear of the Lord. I like how the Good News Version translates the book's final words from Ecclesiastes 12. After all this, there's only one thing to say. Have reverence for God and obey his commands because this is all we were created for. Fear or reverence in both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes should be understood as appropriate reverent respect for God and for God's authority to define good and evil. The wisdom books are meant to provide a framework for living. That framework is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This appropriate reverent respect is the source of wisdom and knowledge, which does not mean that if you don't revere God, you'll only ever get C's in math class. There is a moral, ethical, spiritual dimension to the kind of wisdom and knowledge that these books are talking about. We've all known people who are very intelligent in a narrow field, but they make bad choices in other parts of their life, real bad choices, dumb stuff. You've got a master's degree, you make six figures a year, and you're dating this unemployed couch potato who wants an open relationship? The only thing this person wants open is your wallet. <laughs> you can be smart and successful as the world defines it without having the wisdom and knowledge that come from revering God. 
And it is also possible to have this wisdom and knowledge and to be quite unsuccessful as the world would define it. Part of living in the fear of the Lord is recognizing this difference and moving forward come what may. One of Ecclesiastes' other main ideas is that from a human perspective, we can never really know if the things we experience will lead to what we would call good or what we would call bad. Because we cannot know this, we have to take everything with open hands. In the Bible, there is a story about a farmer. He's financially successful, generous, well-respected. He loves his family. He lives in the fear of the Lord. By all accounts, he lives the good life. Yet, this farmer is permitted by God to lose nearly everything he has except his life. And the story is unambiguous that he is a good man. It makes us as readers ask, what is the good life? Let's watch a quick overview of the story together. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, Okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan? Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter three, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all 
of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life. And you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. My wife once asked me, Danny, what are some of your favorite parts of scripture? I didn't even have to think about it. Ecclesiastes, Job, 
the parts of Genesis with death. <laughs> the parts about suffering and meaninglessness. It's not just because I'm a glutton for punishment. I love the parts of the Bible that come face to face with suffering because so many people think that Christianity is a crutch for weak people. Anybody who thinks that this is true doesn't understand the message of Job. So open there with me in your Bibles, if you will. Job 1.6. If you're using our pew Bibles, it's page 500. While you're opening to Job 1.6, I'll remind you that one of our core values at Five Oaks Church is that understanding the Bible in your part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery. God desires to know you and speak to you. One of the ways he does this is through prayerful Bible reading. If you will make prayerful Bible reading a part of your regular life, expect to hear from God and about your place in his story. Job 1.6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came with them. The Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? The Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. If you're able and willing, please read aloud with me the prayer that will come up on the screen here. Almighty God, by your Holy Spirit, illumine the sacred page, we pray, that our minds may be open to receive your word, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I ask by your Holy Spirit, that you would draw all of us to live in the reverent, respectful admiration of you. May we know the good life as you define it. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The Satan, the devil in Greek, answers that he's come from roaming the earth. The word roam is not like aimlessly putzing around, it's not window shopping. It's something closer to actively moving around with a purpose in mind, roaming around in search of something. The apostle Peter will later warn us that the devil prowls around like a hungry lion looking for people to devour. We read on in verse nine of Job chapter one. Does, does Job fear God for nothing? The Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him? and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
And in one fell swoop, the Satan strikes Job's family, wealth, and health. And we read starting in verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Because Job doesn't curse God, the Satan continues trying to drive a wedge between God and Job in chapter 2. Let me hurt Job himself, then he'll definitely curse you. Go ahead. Just don't kill him. We'll see. Job is afflicted with skin sores all over. Then we read from his wife, who managed to survive all of this herself, in Job 2.9, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job's friends arrive, and for seven days they sit with him and mourn alongside him without saying anything. This is the best thing they do in the entire book. (laughs) Sometimes the best way to help, just sit down and shut up. As soon as they open their mouths and start trying to explain what happened, the whole thing goes downhill, turns into one big argument recorded in a few cycles, and it basically follows this format. Friends, Job, all this suffering you've endured is a punishment for something you've done. Job, I've done nothing to deserve this ludicrous over-the-top punishment. Friends, we believe God is just. Therefore, What's happening to you must be appropriate recompense for you doing X. Job, no, no X, no Y, no Z either. There is no justification for this. I demand God show up here and explain himself for what has happened. Through this cyclical conversation, we as the audience are confronted with several bad ideas about God's relationship to suffering. Here's the first one that the friends propose. Suffering is always God's punishment for sin. If we're good, we won't have to suffer. Job's friends believe God is just and will always behave justly, which is true. But they also think that they have correctly defined justice, which is not true. The friend's definition of justice is that God always gives everyone exactly what they deserve all the time. Good guys win, bad guys lose. God will see to it in this life. So we read from one of the friends, Eliphaz, in Job 4.7. Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. You reap what you sow. Because the friends correctly assess God's character, but incorrectly assess how he operates, they provide a solution that is a mixture of truth and error. 
The solution they provide, based on their wrong assessment, is that Job needs to balance the scales of the cosmic justice system by repenting. So we read in Job 8.5, But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Job, you need to deposit prayer and repentance into God's heavenly vending machine. If you do this, the machine will spit out health, wealth, and happiness like you formerly enjoyed. Job's friends believe that the world is a strict cause and effect moral system that God arbitrates. If you're blessed, it's because you deserve it. If you suffer, you deserve it. End of story. You ever met somebody who actually thinks this is true? Work cuts your hours. Kids thrown up, so now you gotta go to the doctor and pay that bill. Your car's brakes start singing you a song. Mm, fix me. <laughs> you already got more problems, you could use more money, okay? <laughs> and some televangelist tells you all this hitting you at once is because you haven't given enough money to God, didn't you know? So just send his ministry your next paycheck and watch God multiply it 30, 60, or 100 fold. Listen, if just giving money to some ministry guaranteed a 3,000% return on invest in investment, don't you think Dave Ramsey would have a video on it? <laughs> Financial peace would be baby step one, just give all your money to church. But God is not a vending machine. Not only do things not work this way, think about what it would mean if they did. If God's role boiled down to maintaining a transactional system, all about putting in and getting out, it would mean that human faithfulness, or the lack of it, would demand God always respond in a given way. The friends don't realize that their view reduces God to a referee. Also, there is no room for grace in a transactional moral system. Everything is punishment or reward. All of us are worse off than what the friends think because the rest of scripture reveals that God's infinite holiness cannot be appeased by anything human beings can offer. None of us can give enough serve enough, pray enough, whatever enough. You cannot pay your way forward if the friends are right. The friends framework tells them that Job must be suffering as a result of his sin. So throughout the speech cycles of the book, they accuse him and his family of sin, even though we know from the prologue that this is not true. God himself said that Job is upright and blameless which doesn't mean perfect, it means he isn't deserving of what he suffers. In Luke 13, some people wanted to talk to Jesus about current events. And we read this starting in verse one. Now there were some present at this time, at that time, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, 
Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus doesn't say why the tower fell. Instead, he asks, do you think these people are any worse than anyone else? It's a question to continue asking. Are any of us more righteous than the 50,000 who died in the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria? Are we more moral, kinder, smarter, better people than the 228,000 who died in the 2004 tsunami? Are we more generous, faithful, and loving than those who have died in Ukraine this past year? Has God spared us from these tragedies because we are just better than all those who died? To those who were alive and well speculating about who sinned and who didn't, Jesus said, repent. Turn from your own way. Follow Jesus. One day death will find all of us. We will face judgment. If we don't follow Jesus, we will have no defense attorney to advocate for us. Job's friends think this is all a cut and dry issue. So Job says in response to them in 12.5, a person who has an easy life has no appreciation for misfortune. He thinks misfortune is the fate of those who slip up. We are rarely in a position to determine the nature of someone else's suffering. Jesus says, repent. And don't fall prey to the friend's second bad idea in the book of Job. Human suffering is always about us and our lives here and now. In the closing chapters of the book of Genesis, we read about Joseph, the favored son of his father, Jacob. Everybody in the family knew Joseph was his daddy's favorite. He had a fancy coat that made him stand out. And he had dreams about he was going to be in charge of the family one day. So his brothers get tired of it. While they're on a journey, they sell Joseph into slavery, go back and tell their, imply to their dad that he was eaten by a wild animal. Jacob buys the story. A search party is not sent out. The brothers move on with their lives. Joseph spends years in slavery and in prison in Egypt. Despite everything bad, he keeps his faith in God. The Pharaoh of Egypt has a dream, and Joseph is called to interpret it. The Holy Spirit reveals to Joseph that a famine is coming to the region, and Egypt needs to shore up. The Pharaoh is impressed, promotes Joseph from prisoner to vice regent, and Joseph successfully builds the infrastructure Egypt will need to survive. 
When the famine hits, Egypt has the food everyone in the region needs, thanks to Joseph, including his brothers. When it finally comes out that this vice-regent of Egypt is actually their brother, who they sold into slavery, they assume it's vengeance time. Instead, Joseph forgives them for what they did and everything he suffered because of it. And we read in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph's final analysis of the whole story. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Joseph's close walk with God helped him understand that everything he suffered was for his moral formation to humble him and to use him in a place that of his own volition he never would have gone. Joseph's faithfulness wasn't meant to shield him from all hardship. He understood that God is not an insurance policy. God doesn't promise that we won't suffer in this life and that if we're good in this life, we'll be rewarded in this life. Part of the reason for this is that the system has been broken since like page two of the Bible. God's desire is not to referee a broken system. His desire is to restore creation and to rescue as many of us as will come with him before that happens. In John chapter 9, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This man was born blind, and he endured blindness for 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it was. And doubtless there were plenty of days where he was sitting around thinking to himself, why was I born this way? When I can name five people off the top of my head who are healthy, strong, and rotten to the cord. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus gives him his sight. The man himself becomes a follower of Jesus and the healing becomes an object lesson about the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But understand the true scope of this event. Because of what this man endured for a few hard decades, for thousands of years since, millions, if not billions of people have learned from his life that suffering is no proof that God has forsaken you. He suffered this so that we could even be talking about it right now. And if you follow Jesus, you can thank him when you get to heaven. I suspect he will hardly remember he'd ever been blind. Your suffering may seem pointless from where you now sit but there is no waste in God's economy. 
we cannot entirely know what he's up to. And Jesus didn't heal every person he came across. And God's goal is not for any of us to have a painless life. His goal is to rescue us from sin and death. He does that by driving us to trust in Jesus. We won't understand why we suffer all the time, but Jesus does promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. Job's friends sharpen their criticism. They start making up things he must have done to deserve his suffering. Job insists he's done nothing. So the final bad idea is posed by Job himself. Throughout the book, Job insists that what we need most from God are relief from suffering and answers to our questions. As the book unfolds, Job not only defends himself against false accusations, but using courtroom language, he calls for God to explain why he has allowed these things to happen. In Job 9.32, we read, God is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. Because Job lived in the fear of the Lord, when calamity struck, he didn't curse God and die. But he still demanded answers. But God views everything as the author who exists outside of creation while moderating it on a scale the most powerful quantum computer will never be able to calculate. It is not Job's suffering. It is this issue to which God responds directly. Job's error is not the made-up sins his friends listed. His error is the presumption that God owes him an explanation and that Job is even capable of understanding that explanation. But God is not a magic eight ball. <laughs> Most of you know this toy. You shake it up and you ask it questions and you look in a little win window to find out what's the answer to the question. You know, Does Billy like me? Ask again later, okay. <laughs> Could you imagine? You're shaking the magic eight ball to find out if Billy likes you. And instead, it starts asking you questions? Put it down, that's not a magic eight ball. You're in an episode of Black Mirror. <laughs> so Job is peppering God with questions and God shows up in a storm cloud. And instead of telling Job what we the readers know went on behind the scenes in his throne room, God says, put on your big boy pants I have questions for you. Where were you when I created the world? Have you ever been to the bottom of the ocean? Can you ensure the ecosystem is balanced so lions won't starve? Hey Job, are you Batman? Can you judge who is innocent and guilty? Can you decide between those who just need to be humbled and those so wicked, they need to die. And do you have the power to make that happen? You can't even deal with some wild animals, Job. You know so little 
of what anyone could possibly know. And you are demanding that I tell you how to be God. You don't have the capacity to understand the calculus I use to rule creation. It isn't just that we don't know if what we experience is good or bad, or if we deserve the suffering or the blessings. God's point in Job is that there are things we don't know and things we can't know. Although Job is innocent, he's also ignorant. After God asks Job this litany of humiliating questions, Job says, I didn't know what I was talking about. (laughs) I repent. And God points out the friends and says, you were wrong. I'm not a vending machine. I'm not an insurance policy. And Job did nothing to deserve what he suffered. You have not spoken of me what is right as my, ser- as my servant Job has. Friends and family return. We read that they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. Though the Satan proposed and acted out Job's suffering, God allowed it. It was not for Job to know why. The rest of Job's life was blessed. More kids, more wealth. He lived a very long time. It wasn't a reward for faithfulness. It was a gracious gift. Because God's rule of our complex universe is unfathomable. His ways are unknowable, and he is not a vending machine. We don't need answers to every question. We need a framework for living the good life in a fallen world, come what may. That framework is the fear of the Lord. Fortunately, we don't read Job in isolation. The broader context of scripture leads us to one final point. Though the universe is complex, God loves us and has good plans for us. The book of Job doesn't reject the idea that evil will receive its just desserts. What it rejects is the idea that the world is so simple that this can all be worked out tit for tat. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a world that doesn't function optimally. It used to. It will again. We are currently in the uncomfortable middle. The book of Job urges us to broaden our preferred picture of a suffering person and how they should behave and to accept the more unfortunate and more obvious truth that no person or people owns a monopoly on suffering. So be merciful to those who are suffering. Job points us outward to the rest of scripture and forward toward Jesus Job said in chapter nine, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, we know who it is. There will be ultimate healing and ultimate restoration in Jesus. When trouble strikes, and it will, turn to Jesus. But understand that he did not come to take away all suffering or to answer all questions. He came to save us, to teach us how to live through his word, and to fill our whole lives with the presence of God's Holy Spirit until he comes again. 
Jesus' closest followers tell us that the trialing of our faith grows our patience, that suffering is like a refining fire that purifies God's people, that in the new heavens and the new earth, every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. Like Job, you might not ever learn in this life why you suffered, but nonetheless, you can trust that God works all things together for the good of those who love Christ Jesus. So let's respond to this Jesus as we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus. Let's eat it together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus. Let's drink together. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are with us in our suffering. Help us to be your merciful presence in the lives we know who are suffering. Help us to trust in your wisdom as we live in the fear of the Lord. We believe that we will walk with you in perfect harmony and health. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.